0: Today on the Billator Christi podcast, we talk about three historical discoveries that have biblical implications. We also talk about tradition and the problem that it poses in ancient Israel as well as today. Catch this and a lot more on today's edition of the Billator Christi podcast.
1: expressed on this podcast, you are listening, listening to the Bellator, Bellator Christie podcast. to you It's the, the Bellator Christy podcast. Is now join you and his protest with inter-vealing comments copyrights. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristie.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Children. this is Burl Children saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas breaking and i don't know what to do thought we were going strong thought we were holding on aren't we
0: So we start off today's podcast uh, on the Bellator Christi Podcast, where we take up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, while taking Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Of course, this is the Bellator Christi Podcast, and this is yours truly, Brian Chilton. Uh, talking about history, we're going to talk uh, to a little bit today about uh, some some historical discoveries that have uh, recently come to light that have uh, biblical implications and how we understand scripture and uh, a lot more. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about uh, tradition and the problems that, that can come. Uh, with tradition and so uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and uh, we'll also give a little uh, personal uh, a little personal message about uh, some things we're dealing with and uh, some I I think there's some some points that maybe uh, many people can uh, can can uh, appreciate as we talk about um, making changes in life and so we'll talk a little bit about that as well Um, but again, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Uh, we do encourage you to uh, share the podcast uh, on your social media. Uh, also, while you're at uh, tour Christie, we do encourage you to subscribe. Uh, click the link there on the website to subscribe, and by doing so, you will... Um, You'll receive all of the inserts. Uh, excuse me, inserts. You'll see all of the articles uh, that are published and uh, links to these. This very podcast. Uh, we, you can also share the podcast uh, on several different apps. it's uh, found on several different apps: iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, as uh, well as uh, iTunes. I don't know if I said that or not. But uh, again, we th- we thank you for joining us today. So let's jump right into this. Uh, there are some uh, historical uh, archaeological discoveries that have been made that are uh, quite interesting. And one of them, I want to thank uh, Chet Roden and Ted Bright and uh, many others who have shared these, these, uh, these stories online. Uh, first of all, Chet Roden shared um, a, a, an article from The Times of Israel.com, which uh, talks about uh, evidence of Sodom. Meteor blast, cause of biblical destruction, says scientists. And this is not really anything incredibly new because I have heard uh, people theorize uh, that uh, there could have been a meteor that uh, that destroyed uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. But it says a multidisciplinary team of scientists. The thing that makes this different is that uh, there is a multiple dis- multidisciplinary team of scientists using... 3,700 year old archaeological evidence from Jordan's Tel el Hammam excavation project to help understand the end of civilization near the Dead Sea. And um, this is in 1908, a massive blast near Siberia's uh, stony. Uh, Tugunska River flattened some 2,000 square kilometers of uninhabited uh, taiga forest. forestry. Uh, curiously, no crater was discovered, and scientists explained the strange phenomena through a meteor explosion some 5 to 10 kilometers above land. So now this inter- interdisciplinary team of archaeologists and scientists are using the Tugunska, the the, the I can't say it, Tunguska explosion as a model to explain the equally curious end to what had at one time been a thriving civilization uh, in the plain near the Dead Sea. And so basically, according to the paper's abstract, the scientists discovered uh, evidence of a high-heat explosive event north of the Dead Sea that instantaneously devastated approximately 500 kilometers squared. Uh, The uh, explosion would have wiped out all civilization in the affected area, including Middle Bronze Age cities and towns. Sylvia uh, told Science News that a blast would have instantly killed the estimated 40,000 to 65,000 people. There were a lot of people living there. 40,000 to 65,000 people who inhabited Middle Gore, a uh, 25-kilometer-wide circular plain in Jordan. Likewise, the fertile soil would have been stripped of nutrients by the high heat and waves of the Dead Sea's briny uh, salts. Uh, it would have tsunami-like washed over the surrounding area at the same time the explosion's fallout caused uh, blistering hot strong winds which deposited a rain of mineral grains which um, have been found on pottery at Tel uh, El Hamam. Five large sites in the region, it goes on to say, which have been excavated, offered additional evidence of an immediate uh, end to settlement at the same time of the proposed Hill uh, El Hammam disaster. Goes on to say that contemporary potsherds' glazes apparently experience temperatures high enough to transform them into glass. This is uh, incredible heat that would have been um, found. In fact, uh, Sylvius tells the news source that it is perhaps as hot as the surface of the sun. That is an incredible. Uh, explosion that would have taken place. The study was born of a historical riddle. Um, the, 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 the fact that that this area had been a flourishing site up until uh, the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, the team of scientists from New Mexico Tech, North, Northern Arizona University, NC State University, Elizabeth City University, Uh, State University, uh, DePaul University, Trinity Southwest University, and the Comet Research Group and Los Alamos National Laboratories analyzed samples from 12 seasons of Tel el-Hammam excavations to conclude that the most logical explanation for the settlement's demise was a meteor explosion. And folks, I think that this fits very well in fact, I, I had often thought that this was was uh, there was something like this, and this fits very well with what you find in the biblical description of Sodom and Gomorrah. Absolutely, I think it does. So I think that this not only provides evidence of uh, these flourishing civilizations, uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah being two of them, but it also indicates the very intense destruction that happened in these cities. And, folks, I'm just going to tell you, when God says something, he means it. And when God brings judgment, he doesn't play around. So I think that it serves as a a bit of a warning to us as well. So um, I I think there's something to that. And this is going to be an interesting story to follow in uh, the months and years ahead. So I'm curious to see what may come out of this very interesting uh, story. discovery also Ted Wright shares uh, this from uh, hearts.com uh, that the ring of Roman governor uh, uh, Pontius Pilate who crucified Jesus was is found near Bethlehem and the story says that uh, basically that uh, the ring of Pontius Pilate uh, w- was uh, was found during a dig led by professor Gideon Forster of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem some 50 years ago, but now has uh, but now, only now has the inscription been deciphered. Uh, the name of the man who ordered Jesus' crucifixion and ran his trial, the ancient infamous Roman governor of Jerusalem, one Pontius Pilate, has been deciphered on a bron- bronze ring found in excavations at the site of Herodian near the West Bank's Bethlehem some 50 years ago. And this ring was found during a dig led by. Uh, Uh, Professor Gideon Forster of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, a short time after the Six-Day War in 1968-69, as part of preparations to open the site to visitors. Uh, Findings uh, were recently handed over to the current team that works at the site, led by uh, Dr. Roe Parath, also from Hebrew University. And if you go to uh, hearts.com, this is H-A-A-R-E-T-Z, uh, ha- or Haretz maybe is probably the better pronunciation uh, dot .com you can find this article and if you go to my uh, Facebook page or to uh, Bellator Christie Facebook page I try to make sure to post a link there on the Facebook page of Bellator Christy. Uh, you can find this as well I may even uh, write up an article here sometime soon to accompany this uh, podcast but I th- think this is very interesting and there again that shows um, that shows that uh, uh, Further historical corroboration of the new te- of the biblical text, and then last but certainly not least, um, the Baptist Press. This is actually uh, Ch- Chet Roden shared this earlier. Um, it's, a t- it's from BP News. This article that I'm reading, the Tainabica Stone conf- helps confirm and clarify Scripture. Uh, so, according to the Baptist Press. Uh, archaeologists, uh discovery of a small weight from the period of Israel's monarchy helps confirm the Old Testament system of weights in the existence of Solomon's Temple, two Southern Baptist archaeologists say. A beaker stone weight equivalent to about one-fifth of an ounce was discovered by archaeologists with the Israel Antiquities Authority, um, in dirt several years ago from under Jerusalem's western wall, the Times of Israel reported in November twenty first or on November twenty-first. Uh, Equivalent to the biblical half-shekel, the Becca was placed on a scale and used to measure the amount of silver that Jews aged 20 and older were required to pay when they entered King Solomon's temple. In that era, according to the Times, there was no half-shekel coin. So the little things, as Steve Andrews, professor of Hebrew and Old Testament at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary says, the little things are often the most remarkable, Uh, He goes on to say that historically this discovery confirms the system of weights and measures used in Bible times. Such weights uh, called a beka are rare and only a few have been found. And this bika particularly, uh, is particularly unusual because the Hebrew word bika engraved on it appears to be rendered as a mirror image of a standard Hebrew script as though a craftsman accidentally engraved it like a seal, the Times reported. Uh, i go going to say that later this became the amount of a temple tax for those going up to worship in Jerusalem, said Andrews, who uh, has participated in at least a dozen archaeological digs. Um, Daniel Warner Professor of Old Testament and Archaeology At New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary uh, Tells Baptist Press That the Bika's discovery Helps confirm the existence of Solomon's Temple Which was destroyed more than 2,500 years ago Uh, He goes on to say Note clearly the precise location of the find Warner says, It is where one would expect it to be found, just below the southwest corner of the Temple Mount proper. This would place it before the entrance to the Solomonic Temple, where Jews would have needed to measure out their temple tax. The only remaining temple structure in Jerusalem is the Western Wall, which is part of the second temple constructed by the Jews. So, In the end, Warner concludes that the Beak of Discovery is powerful for sure and can attract attention to the biblical text, but it cannot change your mind to believe the gospel. Okay, well, you know, I think the evidence uh, can help in that regard. Uh, Only the Bible itself has the power to change minds and hearts. You know, But I would go further to say only the Spirit of God can change the heart and mind. The Bible is a tool. The Bible is a book. It's a powerful thing, no doubt. I'm, I'm very biblically minded. Believing in the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture, I hold to the three eyes of Scripture. But let's be honest, the Spirit of God is the one who changes. So I would just disagree with Warner in that regard. But going back, this is a very powerful, uh, another wonderful uh, discovery that uh, continues to clarify Scripture, provide uh, uh, an archaeological scientific backdrop supporting the truths of Scripture. And I think that's, I really, I've said before, and I'll say it again, they're finding all kinds of things uh, in the Middle East. I had read somewhere that uh, only something like 18% of biblical lands had been excavated. And and so I anticipate as they do more and more studies that they're going to continue to find um, they're going to continue to find evidence supporting the Scripture. I truly believe. I really do believe that. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if you if they don't continue to find um, New Testament Gospels and texts maybe even up into the first century. I think it's coming. And I believe there are probably fragments and texts out there of the New Testament that date to the first century. I think they're out there just waiting to be discovered. Um, New Testament, Old Testament, both. So, um, it's a wonderful thing to know that we're, we're not just uh, believing as Christians. We're not just believing in something we hope to be true. Uh, we're, we're believing in something that we can be, you, know, you can never have 100% certainty on most things, but the, the probabilities are very strong for Christianity, I, I'm just going to say. and um, So you, you may only need a 5% faith. Uh, whenever there is a ninety-five over ninety-five percent probability that history uh, that uh, Christianity is true, you may only need a five percent faith as opposed to uh, perhaps a 99 percent faith to believe in atheism. You know. Uh, so, anyhow, that's my take on that. But again, I, I applaud those who have been researching in these areas, and I think that there is much more to be found. So, so, so keep watching and keep listening. Uh, I anticipate there'll be more discoveries. Coming ahead Alright, having said that I've been reading through a book Preparing for a class with uh, Dr. Price uh, Had two wonderful classes this last semester With Dr. Daniel Mitchell On uh, emerging Christianity And uh, I'll, I'll try to say a few things About uh, the, the emerging church Some things that you can probably anticipate uh, Coming in the weeks ahead As we approach the new year uh, I'll try to have a uh, word or two About the class there I had a wonderful class with Dr. Haberman in apologetic methods i'll have him again coming up next semester looking forward to that on a class uh, in a class on miracles but also taking for the first time dr daniel price and um I have a class with him on Messianic prophecies, and thus far I'm in my first book in the class of many that I'll need to be reading. Um, many i need to be reading for Dr. Habermas's class, but luckily I've actually read most already of the books that, um, that Dr. Habermas has assigned, so that's been beneficial to me. But this book I'm reading right now is, is very, very, very fascinating. It's, it's uh, part one of a three-part series by Arnold uh, G., uh, Fruchenbaum, uh, who holds a THM and a PhD uh, Frukenbaum, uh, writes a book called Yeshua Which is the, the Hebrew-Aramaic version of St. Jesus Yeshua, the life of Messiah from a Messianic Jewish perspective And I'm reading the first volume And I have to say, this has been a remarkable book uh, I, I've been surprised how, how intriguing this book has, has become because it looks at, uh, this first book looks at the preliminary issues looking at the culture. And interestingly, uh, I never knew this, there were um, three three uh, segments of Pharisaical uh, teachers. And uh, I found this very fascinating as well. You have, uh, first of all, the group that is called... Um, the Soferim, or the Sofer, the um, is a plural. Uh, so, uh, the Soferim uh, is a title of the pre Tananic teachers beginning with Ezra, and uh, they are, um, they, uh, the, the original intent of the Soferim was to educate the Jewish people as to the content of the Torah, and uh, because, as in Hosea 4 6, declares that because of a lack of knowledge, the people perish. Okay, so when the first generation of the Sophorim passed away, the following generations took the task even more seriously, elevating the their previous uh, teachers. And so this goes on here. The Sophorim are about from the time of Ezra to Hillel. Um, and so they are dating somewhere around... Let me see if I can find the date here. Uh, they're dating somewhere around 400 B.C. and ends uh, in... 30 BC, some 40, 400 to 30 BC is where they are, and they write um, a segment of the Mishnah, and so the Tannaim, uh, the ten, yeah, the Tannaim. Uh, or the Tana for short, or the singulars of Tana, they, they go from the year 30 B.C. to 220 A.D., or they're called from Hillel to Yehuda uh, HaNasi, uh, Judah the Prince. They became a second group, and they also um, they, they add to what is uh, called the Mishnah, and so they have um, this oral tradition that they continue that they say that Supposedly dates back to the time of of Moses. Of, uh, Moses. So anyhow, that you have this uh, oral these oral laws. Now here's the interesting thing. Well, before I get into that, let me give you the third third version, the third branch of teachers. So you have the Sofareim, the Tana'im, and then eventually you have this third group that comes along called the uh, Amorim. Amar. <laughs> Amorim, Amorim, Amora is short. The Amorim uh, is an Aramaic term meaning teacher, expounder, or expositor. And they were active from around 220 AD till about 500 AD. And they are the ones who uh, write what's called as the Gemara. So the Sofarim and the Tanaim, they write together the Mishnah, Okay, they, they, they compile what's known as the Mishnah, and then, uh, the Amorim, uh, compile, compile what's called as the Gemara, meaning complete, completion or learning. And so the Talmud consists itself of the Mishnah and the Gemara. Now here's the interesting thing, uh, pertaining to these teachers. The, the, the Soferim, had the understanding that you could disagree with another sofer, but you could not disagree with the Torah. You could not disagree with the biblical text. Okay, so this continues on then with the Tanaim. And the Tanaim basically say, well, you can disagree with another uh, teacher, a a what did I say the singular was? Anyway, whatever the singular is of that. You can disagree with another uh, person within the Tanaim, uh, but you can't disagree with the soferim. You can't disagree with what the Sopharim says. Now, l- this is what They're doing. The Sopharim is building a fence Around the law. They're adding additional Laws onto the law of God The Tanaim, now, they're adding Additional laws. They can disagree with one Another, but they can't disagree with the Law set forth by the Sopharim. And then the Anarim come by, come at, by uh, And uh, they basically <laughs> you, can, you guessed it Do the same thing. They say, well, you can um, You can disagree with with another Amora uh, a part of the Amor, uh, amorim, and I guess I'm saying that right. But you can't disagree with one of the Tanaim who they can't disagree with the sopharem. So you see where this leads. There's more laws that's added on to this, and this is the very thing, at least uh, with the uh, the, the sopharem and the taneim. This is what Jesus is combating. This is what he is combating, as we see in the New Testament text. He's saying they are adding on to the law. They're adding a great burden onto the law. And I found this, as I went on through the chapter, uh, extremely concerning. It says that, uh, that, that through the writings of the rabbis, you see five things, the lessons, uh, uh, five lessons. One, the rabbis do not accept the miraculous in determining the correctness of a position. So, if a person was to do a miracle, if it disagreed with their preconceived beliefs, they, weren't, they would not believe. The rabbis paid no attention to a heavenly voice after Sinai. So, with my, with my good friend Mark Ragsdale, if he's listening to this... Well, you can see here a problem that, that even can happen in modern-day Christianity when we say that God cannot uh, cannot interact with his people there's a problem with that there's a problem that comes with that uh, it becomes legalistic a lot like these uh, these uh, these ancient uh the rabbis number 3 the authority to determine what is acceptable and what is not does not rest with and listen to this this is crazy the authority to determine what is acceptable and what is not does not rest with god but rather with the majority of the leading rabbis if you don't believe what i'm saying here Pick up this copy of Yeshua, The Life of Messiah, from a Messianic Jewish perspective, Arnold Fruchenbaum, uh, on page 158 of the text, in volume 1. The authority to determine what is acceptable and what is not does not rest with God, but rather with the majority of the leading rabbis. Number four, they, they believe that God laughs when men outwit him. And number five, the rabbis will excommunicate anyone who will not submit to their decisions. Okay? So... Here's an interesting concept. Here's an interesting concept. Now, some I'm not going to disagree with 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 everything because I do believe in church life. Is I do think that we uh, need we've lost a sense of authority in our churches. We've lost a sense of uh, and no, I'm not talking about any one particular thing or any one particular church or nothing of the sort. Uh, <laughs> I've had people say, "Well, who are you talking about, there, preacher?" I'm speaking in generalities. Okay. I do think in the modern church, though, we have lost a lot of the authority, and I think a lot of times that's why we have divided churches. Even a church I heard about that split over toilet paper, of all things—that's a true story. I wish I was—I wish it was where I was making it up, but it's a true story. We have people splitting and dividing on all kinds of different things. But one of the problems I think that we find is a is a mentality that we take upon ourselves that's very, very similar to the pharisaical rabbis of Jesus day. Not all of them were bad, okay? There were, there were some good rabbis out there. There were some good teachers out there. There were some there were many who believed in the grace of God just as there are today. I'm not trying to stereotype all rabbis, but at least what you see, In the Mishnah and even in the Talmud, what you see here is very concerning and it it fits very well with what Jesus was combating in his own day whenever he was here with us physically on earth. And that is that we often as human beings have the mentality where we take our opinions and place it over God's edicts. Because there were many rabbis According to what Frukenbaum said that There were many rabbis Who thought that their teachings Were more important than God's word And before you start throwing stones We have the same problem In today's modern Christianity We take our opinions We like our opinions We put our place our opinions Over the word of God And that is not only troubling It is very dangerous it is very dangerous. And I think that it's no mistake that we, I didn't plan on this, but it's no mistake that we just looked at the judgment that we found in Sodom and Gomorrah and evidence to suggest that, it, yeah, it, something really big did happen there, just as God said it was going to, because people would not live in accordance to his His word. They, they became immoral. They, they did all of these Horrible things, guilty of less viciousness and all kinds of things. And no, I'm not a prude. I am not a prude at all. But it has had gotten to a point of just absolute chaos and evil. And folks, our society is heading in that same direction. But many churches are as well. And so, and, and a lot of times, again, I say, we place our opinions, we place our opinions. Traditions, our laws, our opinions over the Word of God, and folks, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. It really is. I'm going to take a quick break here, just for a few minutes, and then I want to close uh, with just a personal story uh, and and uh, and uh, close out the podcast with that. You're listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. We'll be back in just a few moments. Okay, uh, didn't have the, it was a a commercial for Liberty University, uh, just so you know, but it didn't have the uh, vocals on it for whatever reason, so anyhow, Um, had to get my voice uh, together here before I uh, close this out, just want to say that God has really blessed my family in this move, and and uh, as we have uh, moved to a new location, and and uh, God has just thoroughly blessed. But the one thing I did not anticipate is that, um, it, it is the difficulty it would be to say goodbye to our old house. Uh, that that is really. Shocked me. I mean, God bless. We were able to sell the house to a wonderful couple, and it's a it's a wonderful house. It's a smaller house, uh, and, and it's uh, and it's it's been a wonderful place for us for the past fifteen years. But as uh, we we we've moved to a, a nice place, a nice location. The place we were was nice as well. But uh, but it's just amazing to me that I didn't. You know, as we signed the papers. And as we prepare this weekend to most likely say goodbye to it for the, to the place for the very last time, um, it's, it's this, that's, it's become a lot more difficult than I ever imagined that it would be. Uh, this, this little house that we had is, is full of memories. This little house that we had was uh, the place where my wife and I came home after our wedding which was a uh, in a <laughs> a uh um bitter it was it was bittersweet in the sense that it did not come out turn out exactly the way we anticipated we had the thunderstorm of the century as we had an outdoor wedding a thunderstorm of the century that took place uh, but luckily no one was no one was uh, electrocuted or anything like that and and uh, it was a thunderstorm that happened before everybody teamed together and we were scheduled to have it at three o'clock and then right at three o'clock the clouds parted and we were able to have our wedding and it it was a beautiful little wedding. It was a little muddy after all the rain and everything, but uh, it, it turned out really well. It, it really did. It's, it was a very memorable occasion, and as we came back from our honeymoon, you know, this was the little house that we were in, and I was working second shift at a manufacturing facility at the time, and my wife was working first shift, and, um, and you know, this, this house held a lot of wonderful memories, and it was that this house that we uh, that that we welcomed uh, several pets that we had little cats that we had we were we're those. We're those weird cat people you hear about. Everybody warns you about. You know, we we are those people. Uh, but one of the one of the things that struck struck me as well is uh, is the uh, the number of times I was outside at the patio, the back patio at the fire pit, and, and enjoying um, the outdoors, and and would would often pray out there and and uh, and have time with the Lord and. And uh, I was thinking about those things as well, and, and I also thought that this was the place that we brought my son home for the first time from the hospital. You know, it's amazing how often we are um, greatly knit to certain places and certain things, and and that that place that that property will always hold those memories. Uh, with it, uh, you know, as as we started our life together, we started our little family there, and um, you know, there there are a lot of wonderful memories to be made, and and there's there's a sense of sadness uh, there as we leave this place behind and we we start a new or have started a new venture in a wonderful house. A much more spacious house, a wonderful community, and, and everything's been great with the move. Everything's is, has been wonderful with the transition. But, you know, there's always that sense of sadness, and I think it's a very human thing. I really do. And it's amazing how we gather memories together as people. And then I started to think, you know, that's kind of like life is, really, you know, we were there. We were there 15 years, and as I look back and and the memories came to my mind, uh, they, they didn't. It didn't seem like it'd been 15 years. Those 15 years flew by in a hurry. And I've always, often heard people say, you know, the older you get, the, the faster time moves. Seems to move along. And I think there's something to be said for that because here I am now in my 40s and looking back, and yeah, I have things in my life that I regret. Wish I could have done a little better. Uh, and, but then are, there are things that I'm, that I'm very proud of, and, and through it all, and through the good and the bad, I I've, I've see God's hand in it all. And, um, and as we make this transition, it is difficult to say goodbye, um, as it often is. But that transition we're making is, is in many ways, like the transition I think we even make, into some degree from From this Earth into our eternal into the eternal kingdom awaiting us in heaven, we're just merely passing through. And I'm not presenting any some type of Gnosticism or anything of that sort saying that the physical world is no good at all because it is. In fact, God is going to recreate the physical world. He's going to recreate a new heaven, a new earth, and we'll have new bodies, most certainly. but but obviously, there is a time that we will be separated from this body of flesh but yet we will still be in that place that God has prepared for us. So I think there's, there are some wonderful truths that we can think about as we, as we may leave behind certain things in life, as we may transition in life. I think that often if we place our focus upon God, we can see God at work in ways that we may not have seen Him working initially. And I think we also, it brings to, at least to my mind, the, the finitude of life. And uh, the, the fact that uh, you know, 15 years has passed and it didn't seem, and, I, and I'm wondering where did that time go? And another 15 years will pass if God allows me to be on this earth this that long, uh, and I'm sure it will be even faster. So what I'm trying to say in all, in all of this is it's made me appreciate, God has spoken to my heart and, and, and has really made me appreciate the time that, that we have here on earth. It's a precious gift And we can decide to live our lives in bitterness, envy, and the things that plague us, or we can live each day for the Lord, because we never know it might be our last. So, not trying to depress, but I I think that is just uh, something we need to remember, that life is a precious gift. Live each day like it's your last, and forgive and love and cherish those around you, uh, because they are a gift of God. Well, we thank you for joining us on today's podcast. This is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, and we'll see you back next time as we step into the arena of ideas. The views expressed on this podcast
1: do not necessarily represent those of BellatorChristie.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of BellatorChristie.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristie.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas.
0: Do mm-hmm. wow. you